The following content is brought to you as a part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. In this study, we will look at the true heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers as we read and discuss Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. get started so that we can get out of here before the snow comes potentially right that's not snow is it yeah it's snow for me it's a blizzard um all right well we're gonna just so just so you know um we're gonna just do things differently every week uh last week i introduced it and then split everybody into small groups. This week, I'm we're gonna our discussion is gonna be all together. Um, and then next week, I'm gonna do something a little bit different, uh, and I'll let you know um, about that. But it'll be fun. Trust me. Um, just trust me. I'll drive the bus. And. Um, and yeah, I just that's kind of the what when you do a book study, you know, it's not it doesn't do us much good for me just to stand up here and regurgitate everything. You just read it or you're supposed to have. Um the test will be t- administered uh here before class starts just to make sure. Um just kidding. Tonight we're looking at chapters 4 through 7, which is four chapters, not 3. Michelle <laughs> yeah, so four, and that's kind of how we're doing it. They're short chapters, so it's basically yeah, it is. From here on out, it's the next four, the next four, the next four. Um, trying to do it in six weeks. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews four. Uh, each one of these chapters is is really based on a different scripture and focuses on a different scripture and. This first chapter, chapter 4 from this week, the focus is Hebrews chapter 4, uh, primarily verse 15, but I want us to look at verses 14 through 16. The author does mention uh, this whole passage and, and talks about it a little bit, um, but let me read it first. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Several things that we want to point out when we look at this, several things that the book points out, and some things that the book mentions that I want to elaborate further on. Um, The first thing I want you to notice is that the position of Jesus now is what's being emphasized here, right? This is in the present. So this isn't referring to Jesus on earth, Jesus in the past. He says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So our high priest, Jesus, is doing whatever he's about to describe this very moment. He has passed through the heavens. We, we don't emphasize the ascension of Jesus very much in evangelical theology for some strange reason, even though it's really important in the Bible. And so this is the ascension. So this is... The crucifixion has happened, obviously the resurrection has happened, Jesus has made his appearances, uh, and then he has now ascended, and he is, the Bible tells us, at the right hand of God in heaven, wherever that is, right, spatially. 
Um, but he's with God. And he is our great high priest. So he's doing something there. He's not just waiting. He's a priest. The text here tells us he's our great high priest. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, if you, if you notice in these verses, there are two exhortations. Uh, and Ortland brings this out. They both begin with the same two words. Let us, in verse 14, and then in verse 16, let us again. So, this is something that's fascinating to me. You know, I think too often when we read the Bible, we read the Bible and we study the Bible like it's just trying to communicate content to us. What's the Bible about? What's the theology that this is trying to teach me? Because we have this super brainy-centric view of knowledge in our world, which is completely wrong, where we think that knowledge and the way you grow is by getting information from somebody's brain into your brain. But that's not at all what is happening anywhere in the Bible. When we read the Bible, there's something that there's a reason it's being written. It's trying to do something. It's trying to accomplish something. It's always trying to do that. Theology and practice are not two separate things. They're all tangled up together. As you study theology, you're also studying how to live. You can't separate them the way that we often try to, right? And, and you see that here. So in the same breath that we're learning who Jesus is, we learn very quickly what it is that the writer wants us to do, right? Let us hold fast our confession. What do you think that means? Why would he write that? Why is that important? We're going to be tempted to give it up. Yeah. What is our confession? What kind of, yes, Jesus is Lord. What kind of things would tempt us to give up that confession? Persecution? Doubt? Trials? Sin, right? All of that's happening here, by the way. <laughs> you could read Hebrews. All of that's happening in this letter. It's also happening today. This is why the Bible is so amazing, because it's not anything happened then that's not happening now, right? So there's this need then for Christians right now to hold fast our confession, and somehow our ability to do that is connected to what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God. So then he elaborates. He, he tells us how. How is it connected? This is what, where verse 15 comes in. For, always an important word in the Bible, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The idea is that Jesus is sympathizing with us when we face those temptations, those doubts, those trials, right? When we're weak, Jesus sympathizes with us. Now, what does that word mean, sympathize? Understand what? Have mercy, show mercy. The Ortland, and that, all of that's right. And Ortland uses the language of deep solidarity. He experiences deep solidarity with us. And the reason why is because he has been tempted in every respect as we have, yet without sin. So there's nothing that you are experiencing. In your life right now, besides sin, <laughs> you, your sin, Jesus didn't experience that. But the temptation to sin, he definitely did. The, the heartache, the loneliness. Just go back and read his life in the Gospels. All of his friends forsook him, right? He was alone. He was rejected. There were people that should have loved him, that should have celebrated him, and they hated him. He was treated unjustly. He was persecuted, he was killed, he was betrayed by one of his 
12 closest friends with a kiss for money, right? Jesus knows whatever it is that you're going through. He knows because he's been there. And what's fascinating to me, and and Ortland quotes the C.S. Lewis thing in, in Mere Christianity, where Lewis says, not only that, he's gone further than you particularly with temptation, because none of us have ever made it all the way to the end. We've never seen temptation as bad as it can get. Why? Because we cave, right? Jesus was tempted, and he never caved. Never. And so there's nothing that he does, that that we do or go through, that he doesn't sympathize with. Uh, Ortland says, in our pain... Jesus is pained in our suffering. He feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't, because he's been there and he's been further. And then look at what he says at the end. Let us then, here's the second let us. So in light of all that, so this is like, you you see kind of the cyclical way he's arguing. Jesus is here. This is what he's doing. He's our high priest. Let us then therefore hold fast to our confession because we know that he sympathizes with us. He's been there. He's, he's with us. He wants to care for us. He wants to minister to us. He wants to help us. Therefore, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So then why aren't we running to him to find mercy? He does not reject us. He does not get get arm's length, stiff arm us. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder. He doesn't give us the silent treatment. When you need Him and you come to Him, He comes. He responds. Have you ever felt, and and I just, sometimes it's helpful to understand this if we can turn the tables and try to see it from the other perspective. Have you ever felt deep sympathy for another person? What are the circumstances that would lead you to experience really deep sympathy for another human being? Experiencing the same thing they experience. Yeah, that's a huge one, right? In fact, I think sometimes it's hard to have sympathy if you if you can't relate to what someone's going through i i ever since i lost my mom when someone loses a parent that's that just hits me in a different way than it did before you know i mean i would always say yeah i'll pray for you and you know try to comfort them but there's something different now i feel it you know So let me ask you this question. Why, why is sympathy so comforting for the sufferer? You don't feel alone. Yeah. Understood? And would, would, you, would you say even kind of validated that it's okay to feel this way? Right, right. And I, and I, think, I think there may be some, some of that with Jesus with us, that he's, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him, he's already done it. He is also the inspiration that we're following through, knowing that he's made it to the end, therefore we will as well. Just the sharing of it. Yeah. You're not, just not being alone, right? That you don't have to carry a burden by yourself is, is extremely comforting. Can you think of a time in your life when someone else, not Jesus, but can you think of a time where another human being who wasn't sinless, the sinless Son of God, because Jesus was a human being too, so I keep having to qualify everything I say, but can you think of a time where you received sympathy? And it ministered to you. Can you describe that? Yeah. 
So I think that one of the, he alludes to this, or one of the Puritans he quotes does, but I honestly think that maybe the closest I can get to this, to what the way Jesus feels for me, is when I watch one of my children go through something difficult. Um, and maybe that can resonate if you're if you're a parent, you know, like, it, and it, it's really been more when they've gotten older. But, you know, if I've seen them socially rejected, that really <laughs> bothers me, you know, and, and I kind of can understand the the mama and papa bear response that often comes as a result of that. But, like, you remember how awkward it was, like, in middle school, you know, to be rejected or, you know, to not fit in if you've ever been in any kind of context like that. And so if I ever see my children go through that, I, I, I feel something intense for them. And most lately, it's Josiah tearing his ACL before his freshman year of baseball. And he's waited his whole life for this. And, you know, that may not seem like a big deal, but it's a big deal for us. It's a big deal for him. And, you know, I, I feel sympathy for him. And I want to help him uh, in any way that I can. When, when Eden was three... Um, we had a, with Eden, we had a really hard time at first because she, she's never been a very emotional, affectionate person, period. Um, and she didn't want us to hug her when we first adopted her. You know, she wouldn't come sit in your lap. You know, there were just things that you would expect a three-year-old to do. And because of that, it was, it took us a really long time to really connect with her. And I remember one of the early turning points was that she got, she had some kind of mysterious thing in the middle of the night where she couldn't move. And we had to take her to the ER and they had to run all these tests on her. And I stayed with her in the hospital for two or three days. And that really helped me. I know it's weird, but like it really helped me to sympathize for her uh, and, and helped us establish more of a bond um, as, a, as a father and a daughter. And, and I just give those illustrations because I, I'm hoping that in some of that you, you grasp how it is the Bible tells us Jesus is feeling towards you. That's a really good thing, you know. And, and for, for whatever reason, I think we have a really hard time believing that. And, and that's kind of what this whole book's written for, right? Why, why is it that we have a hard time believing that? Because it's clearly in Scripture. So why do you think we have a hard time believing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, what's so beautiful is that I think in... In my sin, when my children do that, that's when it's easy for me to go, okay, figure it out on yourself then. You know, I'm done with you. But, like, I don't, think, I don't think Jesus even ever gets there. You know, I think He is so patient and pursues us all the more. Um, and so that's where, you know, let me just say this. This is where sometimes our human analogies fall short, right? Because often when we try to understand the love of God through human experience, well, we're just not factoring in our sin and our selfishness enough, right? That, that, that's a block there that can often show us limits where Jesus doesn't have those same limits. Um, all right, so that's the first little passage, but we're going to stay here because the next passage is in Hebrews 5. Uh, so it's continuing it. So we're not really going out of this same conversation. He says he's continuing to describe the ministry of the high priest. And, and in 5, he does this thing where he, he's describing the ministry of normal high priests, but it clearly applies to Jesus as well. So he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And so you can see there what he's doing. He's now going to a human high priest and he's showing us how even a human high priest 
is able to deal gently because he himself is weak, right? The point that he's making, and he's going to get to it particularly down in verse 5 where he says, so also Christ, right, is that Jesus is the high priest par excellence, right? He is the high priest who does this perfectly. And so he applies verse 2 specifically to Jesus, this word, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Two different words, ignorant and wayward. Why do you think he uses two words? The author speculates. What do you think? Ignorant and wayward. Right. Yeah, which we all have, right? I mean, you know, like it's, you have to teach your children that saying it was an accident, I mean, that's, that's great and all, at least it wasn't willful, but it was still sin. Like you still did it, so accident or not. And that's the way it is with us. Like, we have willful sin, we have accidental sin, or deliberate and, and accidental. I um, sometimes pray, I, sometimes I use the Book of Common Prayer, um, because it often, as you can, I hope, resonate, sometimes I need words to help me pray. Right? I don't know if you're ever like that, but I get distracted and I just need something that's going to direct me. And I often turn, I have an app that's the Book of Common Prayer, and there's this prayer of confession on there. And I love it because it says, and I think we've used it in church or something similar, um, you know, I confess to the sins that I've done and what I've left undone. And, and you see that sort of double double purpose, like double thing. Like there, We can sin by things we willfully do. We can also sin by just not doing the things we're supposed to do, right? Which, which would fall into this more uh, ignorant category. But, but regardless of the specifics of ignorant and wayward, the point that he's making is that whether you've done it willfully or whether you've done it ignorantly or accidentally, Either way, Jesus is still gently, gentle with us because he himself is sympathy. He has sympathy. He has experienced it. So I don't think, I think that for most of us, and you tell me if you agree with this, I think that I know I could say this about myself. I have a much easier time believing in the gentle, lowly, patient Jesus when I'm suffering than when I've sinned? What do you think? For obvious reasons, right? <laughs> but here's the thing that I want to point to in this passage. The whole context of this discussion is about Jesus being a priest. What were priests primarily called to do? Why? Why did they need to intercede? Right. And, and the, the pathway to God has been cut off by our sin. And so the priest is a mediator who comes and makes sacrifice on our behalf in order to bridge that gap, in order to reconcile sinners to God, right? So the context of this is primarily talking about sin, the high priest. He uses the illustration that Jesus would no more cast us off than a father of a newborn would cast, you know, yell at his newborn for crying. Right? So the point that Ortland's making again and again is not just that Jesus decides to act in this way. But the point that he's making beyond that is that this is Jesus' most natural disposition. That is, this isn't just something Jesus chooses to do. Like he says, I'm going to switch off my wrath for a moment because these people really need my mercy and my gentleness. He's arguing that this is, like if you, if you pricked them, mercy and gentleness come out. 
Like, this is who he is. This is his default. What do you think about that? That distinction, even. Is that, is that a worthwhile distinction to make? Yeah. So often we experience our own discomfort and suffering as evidence against this, right? So why, how would we work through that then? How, do we, how else could we interpret things that are uncomfortable and that cause us pain? other than interpreting them as if Jesus were not gentle and lowly. How else could we deal with that? Yeah. And ultimately it is. Now what that means is not as simple as saying it. It's part of God's plan. Well, sure. I mean, He's sovereign. Can't not be. But we don't know what he's accomplishing. We don't know what other factors are involved. We don't know that he's accomplishing many things at once. The point of being able to see what he's doing. Yeah. No, there's no question. But there is this other passage in Hebrews where it talks about the reason for discipline is what? Love. And when we are disciplined by God, it is not evidence of Him not loving us, but it is evidence of the opposite, that He does love us in the same way that a parent who d did not discipline their child would actually not be loving them, right? If you just don't discipline your child, it's not because you love them more. <laughs> it's because you love them less, Right? We discipline our children because we want to see them thrive, because we ultimately love them, because we know that if we allowed them to continue doing what they're doing, that they would ultimately destroy themselves. Right? And that is also the case in this relationship. So I think that that, to me, would be the alternative to thinking... You know, my frustration is clearly evidence against this. I would try my best to believe that whatever pain I'm experiencing is, is, an, is, is a sign of His grace and His love. Yeah. And then remembering that He too, right, that, that He too experienced this. It's not something that he's cold and aloof to, but it's something that he meets us in. We, 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 as you read, we go deeper into this reality. All right, so the, the fourth or the third passage that he looks at, if you would turn over, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 6. Verse 37, and, and this, this chapter is inspired by a guy by the name of John Bunyan. Have you ever read anything by John Bunyan? If you haven't, then Pilgrim's Progress will be our next equipped study. <laughs> the Holy War, yeah, yep. Um, and he, he, what's the name of this book that he's citing um, here? Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. Uh, and Ortland says that this verse, John 6.37, had to be one of Bunyan's favorites because of the way that it shows up in his writings again and again and again and again and again. I, I find myself quoting certain verses all the time just by habit. So, you know, you could probably say, well, that must be one of your favorite verses. I don't know if it is, but that's probably what's happening here. Um, it may have even been subconscious. Like, I don't think Owen ever, I mean, Bunyan ever sat down and said, this is my favorite verse. But it was clearly impactful. And look at it. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me 
I will never cast out. It's, it's a beautiful verse. It has symmetry. <laughs> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. Father gives me, they're going to come. Those who come to me, I'm never going to cast out. There's so much balance here. It's just one of those verses that is packed with meaning. The first thing is all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not some, not most, not a few, but all of the people that the Father gives to Jesus are going to come to Jesus. So this is clearly emphasizing what? What would you say this, is, this part of the verse is emphasizing? What's that? Irresistible grace, God's sovereignty in this process. That there is a sovereign God who gives children to the Son to save. Now, if that bothers you, just wait, because we're going to keep going to the end of the verse. But it shouldn't bother you. It's a beautiful truth. The problem that people have with that truth is that they never get to the second part of the verse as well, which balances that truth. The problem people have with that truth is that we there's so many people who focus only on that side of things. And that becomes an abstract theology, systematic thing that that's all they want to talk about. We could talk about that another time. Happens a lot at the seminary. The other thing I would point out about this beautiful verse is that you see agreement between the Godhead, the persons of the Trinity. The Father and the Son are on the same page. They're, they're, they're working together. There's not this... There's not this I think sometimes we imagine salvation as like an angry father, right? And he is just burning with wrath. And then the son steps in at the last second and says, no, and, and dies in, in our place. And so then God can, can change after that. But that's not, that's not it. God is, the father is merciful too. It's not just the son that, who's merciful. The father is just as merciful. And the father is involved in this process from the very beginning. But then let's look at the second part. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and here's the, here's the balance, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So listen, in the same breath that we affirm the sovereignty of God in this process, we also affirm the truth that there has never been a human being in the history of the world who came to Jesus that he rejected. Do you see what he's saying? And whoever comes to me, the, the focus on our side of things is to come to him. <laughs> but that's the call for human beings. When we go and proclaim the gospel, we don't proclaim, hey, if God didn't call you and didn't give you to Jesus, there's no point in coming. That's not what our call is, is it? Our call is, if you will respond today, you will be saved. If you will come right now, Jesus will save you this very moment. Whoever comes to Him, He will never, ever cast out. There's agreement in these doctrines. And that's where the history of the church has often gone wrong. There's agreement. I don't know how it works out. I can't explain it to you. <laughs> how do you reconcile these doctrines? All I know is that the Bible's teaching both. It's teaching both. It's teaching that God gives to the Son, and it's teaching that we are free to invite every single person that you ever meet to come and follow Jesus, and they will be saved if they, put, if they repent and put their faith in Him. No ifs, ands, or buts. And then the, thing, the other thing that Ortland points out, that we come not to a set of doctrines, but we come to a person. We come to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Bunyan says in this little book, 
they that are coming to Jesus Christ are oftentimes heartily afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. And, this, and listen, I think it's really easy to talk about that when it comes to a person initially coming to Jesus. The point of the book is that sometimes we're afraid as believers to come to Jesus too. Right? Like, how many, have you ever like tried to clean yourself up real good like before you come? You know, like I, I've, I've had conversations, I've counseled people in situations like this. Like, I haven't prayed. I, I think I got to get some things right. I, in fact, I have someone who lives near me that I've had this conversation with before. I've invited this person to church again and again and again and again, and they keep telling me, I've got to get some things right before I, I'm able to come to church. And I say, that's not true. <laughs> you don't clean yourself up for, for Jesus. You come to Jesus as you are, and then he will begin that process of cleaning you up. That's his job. So have you ever been there? Have you ever been? And whether and you may give, this could be before you were a Christian or as a Christian, have you ever been at a point in your life where you were, for whatever reason, afraid to come to Jesus because you thought he might reject you? Was it due to like you thinking your, your sin was keeping you from him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyone else resonate with that? I do. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I didn't really get to that until I was a Christian, to be honest, because the brand of Christianity that I was familiar with didn't really emphasize sin a lot. It just emphasized, like, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. And, and so that was really what I heard my whole life. And so for a long time, I thought I was fine because I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. Don't have to do anything else. You know, like you've heard the analogy of like a fire insurance policy. Like I had it. I had the policy. I could tell you the date. Prayed the prayer. But later on, I, be, I began to be convicted over my sin and that's when some of these thoughts began to creep in. That Oh, th there's something here different than what I had always heard in every church I'd been to in the Bible Belt. <laughs> and then I think, I think now, I, I, I told you all a few weeks ago about a season of really kind of prayerlessness in my life. I just let busyness get in the way and really just put all my attention on just doing everything and I just completely lost sight of God and I remember in that like I was aware of it right like how could you not be like I was aware like I'm not praying and I remember telling myself constantly this lie that well you can't pray until you can like really sit down and get quiet and get get your mind right and like so, so it was sort of a subtle, like I still had to clean myself up to pray, you know. And really it was just prolonging the prayerlessness because I was never going to get to a point where everything was going to be ideal for me to sit down and pray. It's not how prayer works, you know. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing. He's not giving us some crazy thing to, that we can never attain. He's actually making it easier. <laughs> you don't have to sit down and pray in a closet. You just pray as you go. That's what prayer is. Joins your life. Look, I'm going to read this, this quote from Bunyan here where he kind of reproduces an argument. It's on page 62. He says, But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no, way, no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. 
the, the point that Bunyan is making on this verse is that you and I could never even imagine a scenario where Jesus would ever cast someone out who came to him. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. There's not a scenario. Come to him by faith. You're, you're his. He will receive you. So then why hesitate to come? If this is true, why would we ever hesitate to come? Yeah. Because we, yeah, we, for whatever reason, we lose this picture of Jesus, don't we? And often it's from our own our own experiences and our own heart, our own tendencies. How then could someone fall away? You do believe someone could fall away, don't you? I mean, just one spot that I will read to you. Now, this is our theological dilemma for the night. 1 Timothy 4.1 now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And that's not the only place that we find that. Uh, Hebrews... Several places in Hebrews, but I'm going to read Hebrews 3.12 because it's the easiest to deal with, and I don't want to open up the other can that the other one opens. So, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So how do you reconcile this emphasis that we're putting on Jesus will never cast anyone away, who comes to him, and yet this warning that there will be some who fall away. What's the difference? Yep. So theologically, how do you understand that? Because if we go back to John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Jesus also has comments in John where he says, I won't lose any of the ones that, that you've given to me, right? So then how do we reconcile that emphasis with this emphasis on falling away? Does Jesus lose some of the ones that, that the Father gave to him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to explain, but it's, yeah. Right, yeah. That's why I, I, in that same conversation somewhere, he's also got the language of, he, he talks about not losing any of them as well in John. It's clear that there's an emphasis that all of Jesus' sheep are going to make it. <laughs> That's clear. And so I think Carol's on to something because I think some of these passages are giving us like God's view and some of these passages are giving us human views, Right? And I think from our perspective, it, it certainly appears that people fall away from the faith, doesn't it? I mean, you have people beside you who, you know, didn't just go to another church. Like, that's fine. They didn't fall away by doing that. But if they could have been beside you and they, they quit going to church at all. They quit following Jesus. They, they eventually denied him. They were here beside you. They were in your small groups. They were in your BFGs. They were seemed to have fruit. They were loving on you when you were in the hospital, bringing you meals when you had a baby, right? And yet, they're gone. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. But I think from our vantage point, we would never have known that, right? So to us, it's certainly appears that they fell away. That's just why that language is used. Paul's writing that language to Christians. Yeah. Yeah, and what you're saying reminds me of a very helpful parable, the parable of the sower, where you have the four responses. In all of the responses, there's an initial response. And yet, at the end of the parable, only one of the responses was, was genuine. And bore fruit beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
That's right. The, and one that another human being could never infallibly see. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the... Right. All right, so the last one he does is in Hosea, and I'm going to just sort of quickly do this. So in Hosea 11, 7 through 9, you have this... I actually saw this when I was reading through the Bible, and I used it in a sermon last year, and then when I was reading this book again, I was like, oh yeah, he talks about this verse. It's really a powerful passage um, Hosea eleven seven, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. And then you have God. How can I? This is God speaking. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, people who are not His? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And you see that powerful passage. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I, don't even, I can't even imagine casting you off. And the point that he's making here is that this is his disposition. And he has, this is, a, this is the most controversial chapter in the book. Did you know that? You probably didn't. Did you think it was controversial when you read it? You tell me. This is the one that critics have zeroed in on to take aim. Critics who need to chill out. What's controversial here? Anybody? He's using emotions, the language of emotion, to describe God. And we know from our doctrine in systematic theology class, the doctrine of divine impassibility, which I can't find that word in the Bible, but nonetheless, we know from that doctrine that God does not have emotions. Can't. And see, this is where I come in and say, you know, sometimes God doesn't fit in our system. <laughs> and you just have to realize that. If he wanted to reveal himself in a systematic theology textbook, he could have done that. But he didn't do that. And so the, the solution is that when we read something like, my heart recoils within me, my compassion goes warm and tender, the systematic theologian says, well, this isn't really God growing compassionate and warm and tender because he's impassable. So this is just anthropomorphic language. This is just God using language to describe himself so that we can understand him. What do you think about that? I think there's danger, by the way, if you, do, if you deny divine impassibility altogether, that's a problem. I will say that. But you can't define it in such a way that the Bible quits saying what the Bible says. <laughs> He's clearly experiencing something, and I think we need to take notice of that. And, and, and the author says very powerfully, and he has a whole footnote, the longest footnote in the book is in this chapter, let us not dishonor God by so emphasizing His transcendence that we lose a sense of the emotional life of God of which our own emotions are an echo, even if a fallen and distorted echo. And so we, we need to understand that whatever God is teaching us about His emotions, they're not the same as ours, right? Our emotions are... are fleeting and changing and they, they sway us and they rock us and they move us and that's not the same way God experiences whatever it is he's describing that he experiences. He says the key here is to understand that while nothing catches God off guard and nothing can affect God from outside of God in a way that threatens his perfection and simplicity, he freely engages his people through a covenant relationship and he is genuinely engaged with them for their welfare. At least, you know, oh, and he says this in the chapter 2, older, the Puritans would speak of God's affections. Maybe that's more comfortable for you. Um, 
it really just means the same thing as emotions, though, so I don't know why it would be any different. So in other words, what we have to do is we have to somehow preserve that God doesn't change, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. While at the same time understanding that when the Bible says He feels tenderness and feels compassion, that, that those aren't just empty words, that, they're, that He really does that. So, so we have to be able to somehow affirm both of those. And if we try to tidy everything up real nice and neat, I think we end up not doing justice to the Bible. Might as well just stand up here with Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and preach from you out of that. Do you want that? No, you don't. The Bible's much better. All right, and, we, and so, so here's the last question for you to just ponder before next week. How should the content of this book that your sin draws Christ closer to you in gentleness and compassion, how should that change tomorrow for you? Because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Like This isn't just a theory of God class. This is supposed to be lived. So what does it mean to have and to worship a God like this, to have a Savior like this? What does it mean when you wake up tomorrow morning? What does it mean for your prayer life? All right, well, we're out of time, so let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this group tonight, and I thank you that you have so allowed us, Lord, to meditate and contemplate these wonderful realities that you have revealed about yourself to us. And I thank you for this book. I thank you um, for for Dane Ortland for his writing and teaching us through it and for the historical examples of, of others who've gone before us who, who taught these themes and, and sought to teach us who you are and, and how best to live in light of you. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to greater faithfulness through this study. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.